Hello, hello. Welcome to Words and Voices, a little sanctuary, a quiet nook where you'll hear hard, raw, and humbling conversations with some of the best humans elevating humanity. This is for the round pegs and square holes, the misfits, oddballs, weirdos, tinkerers, and thinkers who dig a simple philosophy that one word, one message, one idea, and one voice can change the world. So, without further ado, here's our chief mischief maker, Neelam Tawar. Welcome to Neelam's two-part interview with Scott Brills, an international entrepreneur and adventure capitalist, making a living in the travel and tourism space. We hear how a childhood desire to travel taught him to seize opportunities and stay focused on passion. We'll dive into how Scott is focused on business despite not traveling due to the pandemic and touch on how silent meditation taught him how much he was or wasn't in control of his own mind. Here's part one of that interview. Hey, Scott, how's it going? Hey, Neelam, doing all right. How's the pandemic treating you? Not too bad. I'm more productive and doing good financially than any year in the last five years, so can't complain. (laughs) Same, same. It's interesting because I think some of us However, people want to see this, I suppose, in some ways is I think when I quit my corporate job, it was at a really interesting time when not very many people were quitting their corporate jobs. And I think I had that pain of that learning curve and the struggle. And it was really, really tough in the beginning. And I I feel like exactly what you're saying, like I'm probably three years in my journey. I'm seeing such a different shift in my business and my art and the way I'm realigning so much of my work to my philanthropy and my contributory type of projects. I know you've had a lot of time to, to get work done now at your, uh, your abode in India <laughs> this <I know>. year. <laughs> I, yes, this year. And this is probably the longest I've stayed in a place over the last, I think, almost four years because I left New York in 2016. And since then, I've been fairly nomadic. You know this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I think India, yeah, this is the longest I've been in one place, but it's it was, like you said, extremely productive. Yeah, same here. I was thinking, okay, how long has it been since I've been in America this long? And I'm, since I don't have any international travel planned until next year because of pandemic, you know, besides, I'm, I'm not going to count the few trips I took to Canada in January, February, just because... Growing up in Michigan, I always felt like it was just another state. But yeah, it'll be the first time I'm thinking you know, to spend a whole year since I got back in uh, Christmas from Tanzania. It'll be um, first time probably since I was like 15 years old to spend a whole year in the U.S. and not travel uh, internationally. <laughs> oh, hold on a second. So the very first country you went to outside the United States was Japan? No, the first time I went on the U.S., not including Canada, would be uh, China uh, when I was 13 as a student ambassador for a few weeks. And then I went to Barbados after that when I was maybe uh, 14 or something. And then um, the next international trip would have been Japan at 18, 19. So that's I'm thinking. Maybe since I was like 17... 16, something like that. Uh, Anyway, it's been a long time (laughs) since I've been in the U.S. this long and definitely done a a whole year without any international travel. So that's one thing I wish I could do. But since you can't, you just kind of work with what you got and instead just focusing on business and, you know, back end stuff, kind of like the non-glamorous 
parts of <laughs> owning and running a business. I know you can relate. Just kind of using that time, this time to do that. And because I know once things open up again, I'll be off running and I won't have as much time to do it. That's amazing. So I feel Japan for you was the starting point. I feel like it was a precursor to what's to come in some of the things that you've created and the programs you do with Eat Japan every year. And you speak Japanese too, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yep. I don't <laughs> I'm just going to say arigato to all of that. <laughs> <laughs> that works. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I don't know what you said, but it's beautiful, isn't it? I mean, so I was supposed to be in Japan this year as well. Japan and Bhutan were the two places I was headed. And mm. it's interesting because I think when I was, I was raised on the African continent primarily, right? So I didn't get to explore Asia. I think you've explored Asia and you and I have spoken about India. And I really think, you know, India way better than, I should not even proclaim anything here. I, I'm like, the, I'm a bad Indian. <laughs> <laughs> That's like the same thing I get from Japanese people too, just because, you know, I've, I've traveled all over both countries, plus some other ones, of course, but it's in a limited scope, right? Like I know it through visiting a lot of different places, but you know, I only have a short amount of time in most spots. So, you know, as far as like the, I can have like a pretty good surface level knowledge of a lot of things, you know, doing that kind of traveling. But as far as what it means to like grow up in Indian, Indian family with Indian culture and, or to like live in a one place for a long time, you know, I don't have that. So, you know, it's, it's just a different type of knowledge, of course. You know, same thing with Japan. I've, I've been all over and people are like, wow, like, you know, you've been to all these places I've never even seen in my own country. But then I can say, like, I've had friends that went to like Grand Canyon. And I, the first time I went to the Grand Canyon was just a few years ago. And they're like, what? You haven't been to the Grand Canyon? Like, I've always wanted to do that and see it. And I was like, you've been there and I haven't. And it's my own country, you know? So it's like, I think we could, we could say that to everyone's got like a story like that. <laughs> that is actually true. And I wasn't like static either, like, you know, raised in just one place continuously. So it's interesting. How do you, because I know you've had a really beautiful, you know, sort of suburban upbringing, at least up until you were 18, things were like cool. And then, I mean, I think with your travel, I suppose there was a part of you that naturally had the affinity to, I wonder if it's about just learning cultures, but I suppose you're naturally very curious, aren't you, to learn? Yeah, I mean, I, I always wanted to travel, even when I didn't have the means <laughs> to do it, you know, when I was a kid growing up. So whenever I had an opportunity, definitely latched onto it, whether it be uh, China or Japan, you know, any kind. And then like later on, I had another opportunity to do like a uh, cultural exchange in Turkey in 2008. You know, so whenever I had that chance. And then, of course, once I was 18, I went to Japan. And then after that, you know, I had my own job and uh, then I started my own company. And so I not only had the time, but also the money to be able to kind of make that happen. And so that's just kind of what I did. I hit the ground running and uh, definitely went stuck with Japan the first two years and then expanded my horizons uh, as of like the Turkey trip, went to, to Europe for the first time. And then next year, I started getting outside of my comfort bubble in Asia and drove uh, from the UK to Mongolia for a charity rally. And then I explored uh, Thailand and, you know, so it was a slippery slope. And now I'm, I'm definitely, with the exception of this year, on the trajectory to eventually hit all the countries, hopefully. If, if there's a spot I haven't been to, I want to be there. <laughs> so that's one of your bucket list type of thing at this point, right? Like you just want to go tackle that next. But how do you assimilate 
the things that you see around the world with with a lot of stuff that's going on right now right like it's a very the world is always going to be doing the thing the world does right but mm. when you travel to places that maybe most people may not think of going like mongolia right let's just take that as an example i want to go by the way so i'm probably an exception <laughs> to, I'm definitely an exception to the norm there but what goes through your mind like as a thinking process like do you get excited is that it or do you i would imagine there's some level of like the adventure spirit in you which i think kind of cuts through everything you do so i imagine even like your business is a little bit like that if it's too boring i don't see mm-hmm. you like going after yeah, something most of it is. <laughs> on the surface at least <laughs> exactly uh, everyone has bills to pay i get that but like in general like if you didn't feel the affinity towards something you'll probably not do it right so how does that kind of spirit that knowing that you know we're one race one humanity type of thing in a time like this how interesting has it been for you to see that like across your travels minus the pandemic of course up until the pandemic what do you notice yeah i mean you're right as far as like if i don't have an interest in something it's it's tough to get into it i mean i've even heard advice saying like you know do your business in something you're not passionate about like if you're still have a company like sell like some widget that you don't know about just because like you won't be so emotionally invested in it and you can just focus on money which i think is dumb i've got like friends that like sell made in china knickknacks on amazon and are crushing it and make a ton of money but for me it's just it's so boring like you know to be like oh i made a bunch of money being a middleman i'm just like uh okay i mean <laughs> it it takes all types you know if that if that makes you happy and you know if, if the money obviously money can be a means to an end like that's great but for me it's just like too boring i can't i can't stick with it so yeah as far as like this year it's kind of been interesting watching like this this great human experiment you know, great is in scope, not uh, obviously like is and good, but it's been enlightening, but also just kind of proves what I already knew and what a lot of people already know about is that humans are humans and they're predictable, even if it's predictably irrational. And you can even trace back things to like the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic and you see the same stuff happening over again. Same stuff, you know, it's, it's more than a hundred years later and it's like, wow like you yeah, you'd love to think that humans are we're in control of ourselves and 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 our minds and we make you know we think and we make decisions and whatnot but this is one thing in a line of many that uh, you know along with like the political strife in the US and whatnot and elsewhere that just shows that we're uh, very emotional creatures we act out of instinct and whatnot and i also it's funny because right before all this is i did a bucket list item which was to do a 10-day vipassana silent meditation retreat and little did i know that a few weeks later the pandemic would be declared so i did that and it was tough just like a lot of my friends that had done it had told me and i got through it and in the end i was glad i did it and people were like you know oh like what did you learn what was your biggest takeaway and it's like yeah biggest takeaway is that i am not in charge of my own brain and people are like what and i'm like yeah like you are kind of like a ping pong ball just kind of like bouncing from thing to thing oh i've got this on my calendar oh i need to do this oh i'm hungry oh i'm tired i need to sleep and you don't really realize that until you put yourself in in kind of like this this bubble that they give you as far as you don't have you have a schedule but they kind of remove a lot of stimuli from your life and so just a quick overview you know, it's it's 10 days long you can't talk you can't communicate it's like no eye contact no touching 
no writing down anything, so you can't keep a journal or whatnot, no electronics, no phones, of course, no books. And so when you're meditating, of course, but then also when you're not meditating, it's just you and your brain. And of course, like your brain is like trying to get out of this, especially in the beginning. And it's like, you kind of got like a fight or flight thing, or actually, no, it's just fight. It's just flight. You just want to get away. And you just kind of, your brain just keeps trying to look for things to do. Like, keep me occupied, keep me entertained. Oh man, there's nothing here. It's so boring. Okay. How can you get out of this? You know? And like, that's your mind. It's just like this monkey chatter in your brain. And it's interesting because you don't normally experience that in everyday life because there's always stuff to entertain. Like, you know, most people don't just like to sit and stare at a blank wall and most of us don't have to do that. And so it's interesting to put yourself in that position willingly you know it's not like you're being sent to prison or something but like willingly even in prison you've got you can generally do more stuff than that you've got books or whatnot you can talk to people yeah so it's it was interesting i did that very timely right before the pandemic and i realized wow like you know we like to think that we're masters of our own domain but we're not so then when the pandemic hits and people kind of react as they've done especially in certain countries i'm just like wow like that's, it just kind of hammers home the point as far as like, hmm, you know, humans are animals. <laughs> I love that. Like that entire, like, it's so true because I just started two parts of this. I did Vipassana for the first time. It was always on my list. I finally did it last year and I rang in the new year, quote unquote, rang in because you know how quiet it mm. is in a Vipassana retreat, right? And we should not even call it a retreat. People call it a retreat, but it's really like a lot of work because you're waking up at 4 a.m. It's a rigorous 10 days. It's not a walk in the park. And I think my first three days were just like, what am I doing here? I think by the seventh or eighth day, I was at a very different stage, mentally, emotionally, and there was one bit I do remember where you can actually go and do your personal meditation after the seventh or eighth day, once you master the techniques they're trying to teach you, or at least learn them for the moment that you're there. You can go into a smaller cell, so mm. to speak, or a smaller room and do, do your thing. And I remember I had such an emotional reaction as I was in meditation. And I and things were coming up for me that I truly thought I had taken care of. Yeah, sure. <laughs> really, really old stuff was coming up. <laughs> and yeah it's almost like, like doing some sort of uh like a drug trip you know like uh, like ayahuasca kind of thing where it just it's just you and your brain so your brain's like how do i pass the time oh let me just bring up everything in my life up yeah, <laughs> and, and and really they're teaching <laughs> exactly and, and and i'm just I, I i sat there i was flummoxed and you know there's there's a part of i know you and i have been in these worlds where we are probably exposed to meditation much earlier. We don't have to be, obviously, there are no real masters out there, I don't imagine. But we try our best to, uh, you know, bring it into our lives because of the lives that we live and the kind of touch points we, we have in our, the, the type of work we do. We really do need to meditate. We don't really have an option. I think as an entrepreneur, I think it should be a precursor at a, at a job requirement for us to meditate. Well, it's, this is really the first time. I mean, I had tried to meditate before just because of, you know, you, you hear so many like interviews with world-class everything, athletes, business owners, whatnot. And like, I would say at least three out of four are saying like, oh yeah, meditation, meditation, meditation. And so I've tried it before. I think the, the max I got to with the call map 
was like in 2016. I was in Korea for 10 days. And I think I did it for like six days in a row. And then I kind of stopped doing it. And, then, and we're talking like 10 minutes, I believe, 10, 20 minutes max. And so I hadn't, besides that, I would say failed, but you, it's not really a failure. It's just uh, not a string of meditation. Besides that, I had not meditated at all. So I kind of jumped in the deep end. And, you know, I, I don't have a daily meditation practice. It's just not something that I thought or that I felt has really provided me with much I could use. But then again, you generally need to keep up with it for longer than that. You need to do it for a while. So I can't really say that with any authority. But so I jumped right in and, you know, so then it's like, all right, you're at this silent meditation retreat and you're going to meditate for what, like 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day. You know, and then you've got some time where you eat, time where you sleep. And then I was also walking around in circles a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> but that, that's basically your day for 10 days, 11 days, something like that. So, yeah, it was very much a shock to me. I, I definitely don't think I did as well as those that had a like a daily meditation set up or had more experience than I had. But at the same time, you know, I wasn't... Um, I made it through. I, I, I'm happy that I made it through. It's just kind of like running a marathon. Like I'm not trying to be first. Yeah. I'm trying to do it just to like prove that I can do it. Also to like knock it off the bucket list and to have a story to tell at the end of it, like I'm doing right now. <laughs> totally. You just did yours recently. I did mine a little while ago. Would you make it a practice, like a yearly thing that you would try to do or, or something of that sort? Do you think you see value in that? I've got friends that do that. And they swear they've gotten a lot from it. They love it. I would say I would put it just as I would put like ayahuasca or something like that. I would say doing it I would not take it off the table forever, but I would say wait a while. If you feel called to do it again, do it. Do I think that just that alone, those 10 days, like provided me with any long lasting peacefulness or clarity or anything, you know, besides what I've already mentioned? Not really. Um, but at the same time, like, I feel like I'm lucky to have a brain that's naturally pretty calm. You know, I, I'm not really anxious. I'm not fearful. I'm pretty just like straight. If you had like a, a graph going up and down as far as like emotional distress or those unpleasant feelings, as far as like anger, you know, the things that they teach you in the Vipassana class that you know this is to smooth that out to acknowledge your feelings and let them fade away and not necessarily to control them but just to like acknowledge them let them fade away and then that in the long term helps you out as far as you know mental stability and happiness and a whole range of things so for myself i have recommended this to certain people that i thought could really benefit from it but a lot of the things that they were saying like didn't resonate as much with me because it's not something that I find challenging or, or I struggle with or whatnot. I've, I've got, I've always had a kind of an even keel and, you know, I'm very, very thankful that for that. Cause I know a lot of people, a lot of friends and whatnot that you know, struggle with depression or anxiety or men, other mental health issues and whatnot. Whereas I um, have not, I've not had those experiences ever. So I think that, just like with everything else, you know, every type of advice, everything you hear, it's different from person to person. You can't take anything blanket. You really have to see, you know, how can I fit this into my life if I want to do it? You know, is it helping me? If not, I'm just going to stop doing it, that kind of thing. I, I really don't think there's much 
besides really basic stuff, you know, eat healthy, get some exercise and stuff like that, that is going to apply to everyone across the board because human physiology and uh, the human brain and whatnot differs from person to person so widely, even, you know, from gender to gender or, you know, like there's so many different things that can change the potential impact something can have, whether it's, you know, a diet or you know, a certain type of exercise routine or a certain type of mental health routine. So yeah, there's always a caveat. You know, how does this work for you? Does it work for you? And then you have to consider that for anything you do. So which kind of knowing yourself is a very important part of this, right? And I think mm. to some extent, you've contextualized what you like and what you don't like. Those are more like more superficial things, right? But when you were younger, you know, just discovering the world or just trying to figure out where you are, what is your pocket of sun, you know, under this wide skyscape, if you will. Mm. Did you ever feel, the lack of a better word, did you ever feel lost at any point or were you trying, you just were naturally drawn to certain things and you were cool with exploring them no matter what? Was that the type of perspective you typically carried? I always had like, you know, a, a plenty of interests growing up as far as like, you know, you would never find me bored. I always starting up like, even if just on paper, like companies and whatnot, when I was young, was very much like a natural entrepreneurial mind. You know, so I'd be in middle school starting up like a comic book company or a software company or something like that. You know, even if it wasn't legit and it maybe didn't make any money, but I'd be planning it out and whatnot. I'm definitely a planner in, in all aspects. But as far as being lost, like besides... Uh, no, I, actually, I can say two things. So besides the natural teenage kind of, you know, am I doing this right kind of feeling, you know, with a variety of things, <laughs> uh, school, relationships, that kind of stuff. I was definitely unsure of what to do after Japan. Uh, so I was, let's see, 19, 20. I started my first business at 19, web development mostly out of necessity. I mean, I was already doing it, but as far as like forming it into a company and, and whatnot, I came back from Japan, went back to my my old job at Best Buy doing like computer sales. Uh, but I had changed so much during my year in Japan, like how you mentioned, you know, Japan was really a catalyst for a lot of things. And so I got back and uh, the job didn't resonate with me really. And, and the people I worked with also could tell I had changed. And so uh, that only lasted about three months. They tried to move me to another section of the store and I quit. And then uh, I was like, okay, well, now I guess I have to get a job, a different job. But in the meantime, I started up my company. That was going well for a while. I, I applied half-heartedly to a few other positions, didn't get any of them. And it kept on going. 2000, you know, like when I was like 19, so like 19, 20, 21, finished up college, got my degree. And then it was like, okay, I've got a business that I've built up for three years or so. Do I want to pretty much give that up, go to Japan, teach English, just like a lot of my friends were doing, making, you know, decent money and having a great time, which is my goal throughout college. I wanted to hurry up, you know, get back to Japan, uh, which was, you know, where I went to my first year of college uh, as soon as possible, because that was just my happy place. And so I ended up finishing school within, you know, two and, you know, a bachelor's degree in about two and a half years of, of coursework by taking like double and triple course loads sometimes. And then I found out that at the end, I, I didn't do it because I was like, okay, I've got this job and I don't want to give this up just, you know, because the three years I'd spend in Japan would basically just be, it wouldn't be resume material at all. Like I would just be kind of having more fun, extending college life is the best way to put it. And so I decided to stick with the base at home, 
continue my work. And also I just started dating a girl at that time and I knew that that would end also if I went over to Japan. So there's a, a variety of factors, but yeah, I end up not never even applying to do the English job. Jet teaching uh, was what they call it, where it's like a governmental program in Japan. So ended up continuing from there. But even after I made that decision to not go to Japan and teach English, I was still wondering, have I made the right choice? Should I get a job? Should I, you know, it's that, that the big thing, especially when you're done with college, as far as if you've got an entrepreneurial goal in mind, do I right now go off and start my own thing and just kind of learn it as I go along? Or do I get some quote unquote real world work experience, get that job at the company, figure out how things work, how to work in a team, you know, get all that, make the connections and whatnot. Or number three, should I get an MBA? So I pursued all three of those, not knowing which one was going to come ahead and, and the race. But funny enough, so the girl I was dating at the time was getting a, a doctorate at the University of Texas, and I moved down there with her, and we, we spent a lot of time together down there. And I was like, oh, she's getting a degree. I should get a degree too. And so I went to, I applied to the uh, MBA program at UT Austin, and um, I met with the dean of the business school, and we had a 30-minute meeting scheduled, and I'd sent him over my resume and all this stuff. And the end of the 30 minutes, basically what he said was, I don't recommend you doing an MBA here. He's like, it looks like you're already on the right path to do what you want to do and not be a hundred thousand dollars in debt at the end of it. So I suggest you continue doing that. He's like, if, if you're going to go into finance or something like that, I would say, okay. Or if you're applying to like Stanford or Harvard and you want to make those high level connections, then maybe, but I knew I wasn't going to do that. So I said, okay, great. So I, I took that off the table. I talked to um, a guy I'd met in Japan, a Polish dude living in California as far as my game plan. And he had been working on his own as like a free agent doing uh, technical stuff and programming for a while. And his name was Marius. And I talked with him back and forth. He was the only guy I knew that was doing it. I didn't know any other people doing it. And so he was like, you know, just kind of bouncing ideas off of him and whatnot. And eventually... I don't know if I really made the decision to just keep with it, but let's just say I stopped applying to jobs and my parents eventually stopped cutting out newspaper clippings and saying, oh, look at this job is hiring and whatnot. You know, after a good five years of working on my own, that stopped. And so I was like, all right, guess I'm I'm in it to win it. Yeah, I'm in it for the long haul now. And, you know, it really wasn't, let's say I started my company in uh, age of 19. It wasn't until maybe age of 25 that I felt like, okay, this could, this could be a thing, 24, 25. I'm like, okay, like this is stable enough now. And you got to figure it was, it was slowed down a bit just because I was going, I was getting a degree at the same time. And I was still every year traveling for a few months to Japan just to hang out. I worked at a ski lodge there, you know, some other stuff. So, you know, for, for the average person, it may take a little bit less time, maybe two years. I've heard two years thrown around a lot, three years thrown around a lot. It took me a little bit longer. I was doing a few other things on the side. But uh, yeah, eventually it uh, looks like it all worked out. <laughs> it did, of course. <laughs> I was actually going to ask this earlier as well, was that what was the reaction of everybody around you? And I, I understand mom and dad not sending you paper clippings of jobs. I get that part. But were, was there anything around you, especially looking at peers, right? Like you look at uh, your friends, people making different types of decisions. You already said that quite ahead in this conversation that fine, everyone's different for sure. But every now and then we do have pressure to conform, right? Mm. And there is that individuality which you carry through quite gracefully, actually. I've known you for a little bit now. Um, I'm not 
sure if it was easy, though, despite all of this, right? Yes, you had someone give you good direction, meaning don't apply to this university. And now I realize we have one more thing in common, like Austin as a common common thing, a common thread <laughs> with us. But even just that, right? Because in the moment, you could make a different choice. Like, hey, listen, dude, I want to do this because why not? I need the degree or whatever that pressure is. How do you handle that self-talk? It's definitely there. I mean, like the parents were, they've always been very much... Um, eager to, you know, be like the kind of, like, if you're happy, we're happy, not pressing me particularly in one way or another, which is, you know, another definitely benefit I've had versus some of my peers, you know, you know they're not saying, oh, be a lawyer, be a doctor, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. You mean like what Indian parents say to their kids? <laughs> oh, possibly. <laughs> lawyer, lawyer, doctor, or engineer, pick one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so like I've been lucky in that aspect, but as far as like societally, there's always that pressure, even if it's not acute, it's more like, okay, some people may grow up differently, but as far as I grew up, people weren't doing that. My parents worked for the government. There was no entrepreneurs in my family. I think my great, great, great grandfather was an entrepreneur after he got out of the civil war. But besides that, I don't know of anything else in my family. Maybe my uncle in California, he started up his own web hosting business long time ago. But other than that, yeah, it's, it's been few and far between as far as like people around me doing that, not only just family, but also friends and whatnot. There wasn't much of that. And so for the first you know few years, like I was talking about, it was, am I doing the right thing? You know, everyone else is doing something different. You know, should I do what they're doing? Should I get a job? And so it was, it was tough. I, I could definitely say I was unsure of my decision for a good five years or so because I didn't know many people around me doing it with the exception of uh, I had one buddy that I used to be on the swim team with a long time ago who was running his own videography service for, for companies and he was kind of doing his thing and I, I would help him out every so often. And then also even more importantly, one of the guys I went to Japan with when I was 18, 19, he introduced me when we got back to the States to his old roommate and fraternity buddy who was with his brother starting up their own web development firm. And they needed an, a front-end guy. They were back-end, they were both coders, and they needed a front-end guy. So we ended up working together for a few years. And then they pivoted, and then pivoted again, and pivoted again, and pivoted again. Another very successful multi-million dollar language learning company <laughs> called Mango Languages. Uh, however, way back in the day, we were at their mom's house in the den upstairs, like, you know, just talking about how to make this like pharmacy website, e-commerce website and whatnot. So that was probably a really big catalyst in me being able to make money, show that other people were doing it, bounce ideas back and forth and whatnot. You know, that was a huge thing, you know, because it was right after I got back from Japan. It was after I quit my job at Best Buy. And even to have, you know, those two guys to kind of bounce stuff off of and, and to work together and say like, wow, they're doing it too. And, and I'm actually making money off of it and whatnot. You know, even if it's just one person or in my case, two people, uh, that helps a lot, you know, because the majority of people just in my universe at that time, like it wasn't really a thing. So yeah, I, I'm thankful to to have that too. So thanks to Jason. Thanks, Michael. <laughs> and mom and dad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, of course. Well, uh, that's interesting because I think that pressure internally wasn't there for me either because I quit my job at a point where most people don't quit their jobs. 
And no one at home said, you should do this, you should do that. In fact, it was funny because I felt like this weird pressure that I built on myself. Like, am I disappointing them at this point? Like, should I, why am I just changing? It wasn't so much about why am I changing direction. It was really about like, I'd rather take the unfamiliar over the familiar prison, if you will. Mm. I think sometimes you just really, this is not something, you know, it's just certain factors are there for us. I know people who have much more challenging situations and and being thankful is like totally important in all of this, right? Because you recognize that if you didn't have certain things around you, certain things, apart from your personal will and your determination to do certain things, I think it wouldn't have been that easy to carry on. So you're quite lucky. And I feel lucky actually there too, because I'm just like, yeah, like I I think I could not have done this. At the time I did this, like you started much, much earlier. I think one of the other things I was also thinking about as you're sharing your experiences is there's always the difficulty of being who we are, especially during pressing situations and circumstances that are, you know, there to make us better. And in the moment, we don't realize it. I found that part quite interesting and to some extent challenging. And I wonder if you ever had those moments where you had such deep clarity in, hey, I'm just going to keep going in this direction, not going to get distracted. And I'm not talking about determination here. I'm just saying like, hey, this is the path I've chosen. This is the path I'm walking no matter what. Did you have that kind of like moment? Was this something where, you know, because that visual, I can totally see you, the visual you're talking about your friends being, you know, in their mom's house, being in a small room, trying to get something done, trying to build from scratch. Our version of like the garage, you know, the the classic like Apple computers or HP computers garage. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So that was part one of Neelam's interview with Scott Brills. On the next episode of Words and Voices, you will hear part two of the interview where Scott talks about some of his experiences in Japan and learning the language, his plans for future travel, and the encouragement to find satisfaction in what you are doing. Thanks so much for stopping by Words and Voices with Neelam Tawar. We can't wait to see you again with another voice and more words from game changers, movers and shakers, and quiet visionaries creating a dent in the world. Oh, and please don't forget to comment and share what resonated with you here or on info at neelamtawar.com. Till we meet next, and as Neelam says, be good to you.